Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So today we're continuing our study on one of Jesus's most, uh, most famous parables called the prodigal son. It's been called like the gospel in a nutshell because it has everything we need to, to really understand God and, and what he's done for us. So let's do a quick recap just so we're all on the same page. And if you've missed any of these sermons, you can go back online on YouTube. You can catch up and, and follow along so you kind of know what's going on. Remember, Jesus is telling this story because the religious leaders continue to complain that Jesus is hanging out and welcoming sinners. Like they're attracted to Jesus. What he's saying is affecting them, changing their lives. And the religious leaders are like, why is he with these outcasts? Why is he with these sinners? Because he's showing compassion and mercy to the people that the religious system said they're out. They don't need to be a part of us. They can't be a part of us. They're not, they're not good enough to do this. And yet Jesus was doing something there, showing them grace and mercy, and they didn't understand it. So he launches into three parables to kind of help them grab hold of what he's doing. He tells them, this is all in Luke chapter 15. He tells them the story about how a shepherd has a hundred sheep. One goes astray. The shepherd leaves the 99, goes after the one. Luke 15, 7 says, Jesus then sums it up with saying, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. So Jesus has come to save these sinners. And in order to save the sinners, you have to reach them. You have to hang around them. You have to talk to them. You have to be with them to share about the gospel. And so he says, hey, and heaven rejoices over this. Then he tells the, the story, the parable of the woman who has 10 coins worth a lot of money. She loses one coin. So she tears her whole house up looking for the one that she lost. When she finds it, she celebrates. Jesus connects this to verse 10. He says, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So it's this joyful, it's this celebration over the lost being found. And then he tells the story that we've dove into the past couple of weeks, the story of, of what's titled the prodigal son, or it'd be better titled the story of two lost sons. Because the story tells us about a father who has two sons. One of the sons, the younger son, asks for his inheritance early, basically wishing the father was dead, wishing the father wasn't around. He cuts ties with his family, takes his inheritance, runs off, parties all his money away, blows absolutely everything. And he comes to his senses as he's feeding pigs and says, you know what? My father's servants have more than I have. I can't even satisfy my natural hunger. Like I can't afford food. So I'm going to go home and maybe my dad will hire me as a day servant, a day laborer. Like I'll be better treated as just being a servant in my father's home. So he drums up this story, drums up this speech. He says, I'm going to go home, tell my father all this. So he heads home. And you remember what happens when the father sees him long off. The father does what? 
yeah, runs after his son, throws his arms around his neck and welcomes him home. He doesn't have time to even bring up this idea that he wants to, be a, uh, wants to just work for his father. His father puts the finest clothes on him, welcomes him in, and has a big celebration, just so glad that his son's home. But the older brother, the older brother sees this and gets furious. He doesn't want to participate in the party. He doesn't want to participate in the celebration. And we find that the elder brother is just as lost as the younger brother. The insider, the one who stayed home, the one who did everything the father asked was actually now the outsider. He thought that because he kept all the rules, that that means his father owed him something as if his father hadn't given him everything up until that point. So the elder brother wanted to point at all the other people's sins, right? He wanted to focus on his brother's sinful state, not focus on the grace and mercy of his father. You see, elder brothers believe their self-righteousness makes them better than other people. Elder brothers focus on all the wrong things. They even get upset when the pastor wears a t-shirt to preach. Oh, you elder brothers just chuckled, didn't you? You see, the elder brother didn't want an intimate relationship with the father. Their heart was, his heart wasn't like the father's. He didn't love the father for who he was. He just wanted his things. He wanted stuff from him. And we learn that God desires this intimate relationship with us. That's why he created us. He didn't need to earn anything from the father. His father was going to give him everything he had. Yet his pride caused him to miss out on his father's love. He never received that grace and mercy and wasn't extended wasn't able to extend it to others. And there's a ton of tension in this story. We can find ourselves asking, am I the younger brother? Am I the older brother? Am I a little bit of both? I mean, there are times in my life and it's good to ask those questions. But the more important question to ask is not who are you in the story, but the more important question to ask is who is God in this story? And do you see God is your view of God the view of this, this father in this story? You see, for me, my default view of God is deism. Okay, and what that means, that means there's a God out there who created the world, but he's not really interested. He's not really involved, and he doesn't really care. So my default view of God is that, well, he's just busy because he's God. Like, doesn't he have something else to do than worry about me and my problems? And so I think surely he has something better to do. And I don't get upset about that. I'm not offended by that. I just figure he's God. He's kind of out there, not really worried about me at all. That's my default view. If I don't allow scripture to transform me and kind of work through that, that's naturally where I go. And I ask you, what is your default view of God? Like, 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 what do you naturally think of God? If, if you're not in the word all the time, if you're not constantly being changed, what's your default view? Do you think he's a God that's like uninterested in your life? Do you think he's this God full of wrath, ready to just wipe you out at a moment's notice? Do you think of God as just this Old Testament type of God waiting for you to do all these works so he can finally be happy? Do you think he simply loves and he accepts everyone and nothing bothers him at all? Just go for it. But another question I have is, what do you think shaped your view of God? What do you think caused you to think that way about him? 
I'd venture to guess that for many of us, our earthly fathers have actually shaped our view of God. Our fathers are ridiculously powerful figures in our lives. I mean, study after study shows while moms, you are awesome and important. Our kids would never brush their teeth without you, okay? We know that. There's something about the father that influences the family in a very dynamic and very powerful way. And so for me, well, my father wasn't around growing up. I didn't know him. He had other things going on in his life that needed his attention, and evidently they were far more important than me. And unfortunately, that's my natural view of God, that he's not really interested. He has other things to do. And I wish that this was just my issue, but I've been a pastor long enough to know that that's many of our issues, that our view of God is influenced negatively or positively very, very much by the father figure's in our lives. And some of you had great fathers. They supported you. They were there with you. And you got to see this great heavenly father reflected in that. They helped you develop a strong understanding of God's love. But some of us, well, we didn't. And maybe our fathers tried the best. I want you to think about this. This just happens to be Father's Day, by the way. I know it kind of works together. I don't know how that's going to work out, but it just happens to be what we're talking about. But maybe for you, God seems distant and unloving, not really interested in your life. Maybe for you, God's just a workaholic, always out there somewhere, always too busy to really be involved in your life. And maybe that's been reflected by your father. Maybe God is a killjoy ready to pounce on you for every mistake you've ever made. Perhaps your father demanded perfection from your family. Perhaps God is someone you keep trying to win the approval of. And I ask, did you always seek the approval of your dad, but you never found it? Perhaps God is someone that you revere and respect, but not someone you really have an intimate relationship with. And perhaps your father was a respectable person, but not really a loving father. Maybe your God seems oppressive and dominant. Maybe very controlling because that's the home you grew up in. And for some of you, to think God, to think God could be anything like your father, or when you hear that God is the father, it makes you stick to your stomach. I mean, you can't even fathom that your, your father and, and God, like you can't stand that they would even call themselves the same thing. Like it just bothers you because those things your father did cause you to push back even the idea of God, that there could be a loving and accepting God out there. And we could go on and on and on, but it's amazing to me on how connected our earthly fathers and the picture that we default to of God comes from how our fathers interacted with us and the things they did with us or didn't do. But thankfully for us, Jesus, I mean, God has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ and through his word that gives us the true picture of our heavenly father, the one that our earthly father should have pointed to the entire time, the picture and the characteristics of God. You see, in the prodigal son, we see the true character of God shine as the heavenly father who welcomes us all. And the late Charles Stanley shares with us several things we're going to go over, these ideas I got from him, and I thought they were so good, I wanted to share them with you this morning. And I want you to cling to these. No matter how your, your view of God has been in the past, I want you to cling to these things. And perhaps those of you who are fathers, you would, be, you would do well in reflecting this in your own home life. First up, we see the, the fathers, our heavenly fathers love 
has no limits. The prodigal son went as far as he could possibly go. He wished his father's dead. He blew all his money on prostitutes. He just left and lived a wild life. Yet we see the father not even question him when he came home. The point is, no matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've done, you have a heavenly father waiting to accept you back home. You've already been forgiven. Before you've done anything, he's already forgiven you. And for some of us, we think and we live as if there's no possible way that God would forgive us. But the message of this parable is, yes, he will. You can't go too far. You can't outrun God's love because your sin is not greater than the payment made by Jesus Christ. You are not greater than him. You have to understand that you are not greater than Jesus. So your works are not greater than his. His payment is sufficient for your sins. So this idea that you've gone too far and can't be forgiven, that's not in the scriptures. That's not the God of the New Testament or the Old Testament. That's just not in the Bible. And that isn't true, but it is the church. It's an indictment on the church. It's an indictment on the elder brothers who have made too much of certain sins to think people can't be forgiven from them. That's not our God. Jesus' payment was enough. The Father's love has no limits. We also see that our heavenly Father's love is patient. Maybe you grew up in an impatient home, and maybe you are a bit impatient. I completely understand that. But we see the Father's love here is very patient. We have no idea, because it's just a story of how long the prodigal son was gone, but it was gone obviously long enough to spend and blow a small fortune, find a job, work that job, and then kind of be broken in that process. With the elder brother, we see that even though he didn't want to go in and he was throwing his temper tantrum saying, I can't believe you're doing this, the father goes out and begs his son, which is unheard of in this society, begging his son to come in. I mean, the patience of this father are amazing. Our heavenly father is patient with us, waiting for us, waiting for you to come home. We see that our heavenly father is eager to express his love. When the father saw the son, he ran towards the son, right? He ran towards him and embraced him and kissed him. He left his dignity. He left his pride all for his son. We see our heavenly father is eager to redeem and embrace sinners. And some of you, some of us, we think God is just eager to display his wrath. And we're way too excited about that. But we see the opposite. We see God running to the sinner, ready to welcome them home, to love them and accept them. That's what we see on the cross. We see the demonstration of God's love where Christ came down and took responsibility for what we've done. We also see that God's focus is on the sinner, not the sin. When the prodigal came home, he had a speech rehearsed. He was ready to go, but the father was focused on the person, the actual human being behind the sin, like the real person created in the image of God. He didn't sit there and, and, and focus on his sin, tell him to make a laundry list, ask him and say, I can't believe you did this. You know, I told you not to. Isn't that what we do? He says, now come home. Just welcomed them home. 
We often think that God is just up there with a pen and pad writing down all the stuff we've done wrong so he can accuse us and and, and just um, destroy us later in it. But when it comes to God's love, your sin is irrelevant. You say, Brian, how can that be? Because Jesus is, again, we're going to repeat this, Jesus' payment was enough. It's not that this grace is cheap. It's not that it wasn't costly. It was very costly. It cost the Son of God to come down to die for you and die for me. So your sins have been paid for. And now he wants to restore us into his family. And we see that God receives this sinner back into his fellowship joyfully. When the son comes home, the father throws an elaborate, expensive party for his son. And all three parables, the one about the sheep, the one about the coin, and about this son, there is joy when they come home. There is celebration. There is excitement. In church, we should be joyful. We should be celebrated about people turning and giving their life to Jesus Christ. And for people coming home, not beat people up, not point out everything, but point to who Jesus is and what he has done. And he invites all of us to attend and celebrate. We see the elder brother, the one who's throwing a temper tantrum, also invited to the party. Even the self-righteous who don't think they need it, he says, come on. Come be a part of this. Experience my grace. The father is just happy the son is home. You see, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a great feast where we're welcome. We get to eat and banquet with God. You see, these are the characteristics of our Father, our Heavenly Father. This is the picture of God, that his love has no limits. His love is patient. He's eager to express his love. He's focused on the person and not the sin. And he joyfully, I mean joyfully, welcomes people into the celebration. Our Heavenly Father is the perfect Father full of grace and mercy. And all of us long for that Father. And at some level, we didn't get it from our earthly fathers. I know they tried their best. We try our best. No one, we're still not going to get it perfect. But that longing inside of you is actually for your Heavenly Father. In other words, if you've experienced father wounds or you have them in your life right now, you could take all that pain and all that hurt and allow it to point you to the true father, the one who welcomes you, the one who accepts you and says, come on, I got this, I got you, come on. Your true need is for God. And we don't have to be confused when it comes to who God is. Jesus points us to him. When we see Jesus, we see God. When Jesus was teaching his disciples, they were confused about what this looked like and how it all worked, and and Jesus brings it home for them. John 14, 8, he says this. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. He's like, just show us God. So we know it's you. We, We got it. Just show us who he is. Just let us peek behind. Jesus replied, I've been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? He says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I speak are not my own, but the Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me. Or at least, he's saying at least, if, if, if you're struggling to get your mind around that, he says, at least believe because of the works you've seen me do. He's saying, look at what I'm pointing to. Look at the things I'm doing. It takes you to the Father. 
You see, so many people I meet and have encounters with, they have this tension between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're like, I just don't get it. That seems like a completely different God. None of this makes sense. It's not the same. But folks, Jesus came and deals with that tension. He deals with that force. He makes clear who God is and tells us that when we see him, we see the Father. How we are to understand the Father is through the person and the works of Jesus Christ. He is the direct representation of God. And when we look back at the Old Testament, we see the severity of sin. We see the seriousness of sin. But we also see the, sign point, the signpost pointing to Jesus, to the one who is to come, the one better, the one who gets it right, better than all of us. And so our loving Father, who is full of mercy and grace, he wants this relationship with you and me. And you may rightly say, well, what about his justice? What about justice? What about his wrath? What about those things I hear about? You would be absolute correct, but we still point to Jesus. He's already dealt with all this. See, as Tim Keller points out, he says, Jesus is our true elder brother. You see, in the story of the prodigal son, the younger brother had a Pharisee for his brother. When he messed up, he was quick to point out all his flaws and all his sins but not us. Jesus is our true elder brother who gladly paid the cost for us to return home. You see, Jesus, the son of God, is the direct representation of God. And through him, we, be, we become children of God. The Bible says we are born again. The Bible also says we are adopted as his son and daughters. And Paul picked up on this. I mean, Jesus tells us in the gospel, he says, anyone who does the will of my father... Well, they are my brother and my sister. Paul picks up on this. He says in Romans 8, 29, he says, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this. Hebrews 2, 11, he says this. So now Jesus and the one he may, makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and his sisters. He is our true elder brother that's missing from this story. You see, the elder brother doesn't go after the younger brother, but our elder brother does come after us. He is the good shepherd who chases us down. You remember in the story, we saw that the elder brother knew what the younger brother was up to. He gives it away in a speech. He said he blew all his money on prostitutes. He knew what he was up to. He knew what he was doing, but he didn't go after him. He let him sit in it. He let him deal with that. But we have an elder brother who is willing to pay the cost for us to come back home. That older brother in the story was so upset that he had to spend his money to bring this younger brother back home. Remember, the father already split up the inheritance. And so anything that that younger son now gets or eats is the elder brother's. He's furious with it. But Jesus, our elder brother, was willing to pay the cost for us to come home. He laid down his life to satisfy the justice of God, the wrath of God. He took our place on the cross. See, Paul says it like this in Ephesians 2. He said, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. And this idea must, must transform your life. The grace of God, 
Grace is God's righteousness at Christ's expense. That's, that's how I learned it growing up, and I love it. Grace, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. We are saved by his grace and his grace alone. And we live in a performance-driven society. You know this, I know this, where we get accolades for how well we do. We get accolades in our family for how well we perform. But we think that God also evaluates us based on this performance, but it's not true. We are saved by his grace. You are loved as much as you will ever be loved. He is as proud of you as he'll ever be proud of you. Like God has already given you this. He already loves you. He already cares for you. You can't earn it. Your debt has been paid because of Jesus Christ. But do you cherish his grace? I mean, do you live in that? Do you abide in it? Let me ask you this way. Do you think your works make you more holy? Do you think what you do makes you better than other people? Do you think those other sinners, well, they're worse. Like they're not as, I'm not as bad as them. You compare yourself to others to make yourself feel better about yourself. Do you think that God loves you more than those others? Do you point to your righteousness as a reason for, to, to get good things from God? You haven't embraced grace. You're still trying to earn it, trying to get there on your own. But see, the gospel tells us something different. It tells us that God created the world to share in this special relationship with humans. And that we were were created to manage the world on his behalf and share in this intimate relationship with him. But sin entered the world. In fact, sin enters our life. All of us have chosen to sin. Would you agree? If you don't agree, ask your spouse. They'll tell you about it. Yeah, all of us have sin. Like we have this problem And we've tried to meet our deepest needs through sin. And we have found one way or another that just leads to brokenness. And we try to fix that brokenness. We try to medicate that brokenness. We try to do all this stuff to mend it, to make it feel better. But we still experience this brokenness and this lostness. We'll even try to be righteous by our own standards to make it work. But God... But God, Paul says, but God, God stepped in and did something about this. John 3, 16, look at this. He says, for, God, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that whoever, that everyone who, I'm getting a different version stuck in my head, sorry. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We're like, but God did this thing. He loved the world in this way that he sent Jesus to die for us, to rescue us. And the verse doesn't end here. This is important. Keep going. Verse 17. He says, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but here it is, folks, but to save the world. Jesus came to save it. The world's already broken. The world's already condemned. It's already going nowhere. Like, it's a mess. If you didn't turn on the news, it's a mess. Jesus came to save, folks. Save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. So Jesus came to save us from this broken world. Whether you're on the path of self-righteousness, thinking you're just going to earn your way and you're going to please yourself and everything's going to be great because how awesome you are, or you've lived a pure, sinful life, regardless of your story, none of those things will satisfy. Jesus stepped in, God stepped in. That's what it is. The world's already broken, but God did something about it. 
Jesus came and lived a perfect life, demonstrated to us what that, what that looks like. He taught us. Then he died up on a cross. He substituted himself for us. Like he substituted and died for us. He took the wrath of God on himself and then rose from that grave three days later. And it's only because this is very important, especially if you're drawn to that elder brother, especially if you're drawn to pointing to your works and your righteousness and your goodness. This next section is very, very important for you. So because of what he's done, then we are declared holy. We are never declared holy because of our works ever. We are not in good standing with God because of what we've done. You're like, yeah, but I'm not as bad as them. It doesn't matter. You're still not declared holy unless you have Jesus Christ and it's purely by his grace. So we repent. That means we turn from living for ourselves. We turn from our self-righteousness and we believe in Jesus Christ. We put our faith and trust in him. Look at what Paul says. This is so important. He says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of the God's glorious standard. Like Paul, you, he's like, yeah, I try to kill Christians. I was there. I held their jackets while they stoned them. Like I'm a mess. Paul's like, yeah, so for we all have sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standards. Yet, yet, or but God in his grace, so important, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. So how are we made right with God? By going to church every week. That's it. Nope. By going to Wednesday night prayer meeting. Like that is it. Volunteering for VBS should be it, but that's not it. How are we made right? We all fall short, yet it's God and his grace freely makes us right in his sight through Jesus. Like the only way you're made right with God is because of Christ. You have no works to point to, none. You're like, yeah, but I have perfect church attendance. So what? Jesus makes you righteous. Jesus makes you holy. You can't point to anything you have done. So we don't need to point to what other people do. Do you understand grace? That is the gospel. It's by Jesus we're declared holy. It's grace. Paul says, can we boast? You're like, yes, Paul, we boast all the time. He says, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? Like, can we boast about this? No. Yeah, but I do it anyways. No. But I'm not as bad as them. No. You can't boast about anything you've done because you're not good enough. You're like, yeah, but I feel good enough. You're not. Jesus is. Can we boast then that we've done anything to be accepted by God? No. Because our acquittal, meaning declared not, declared guilt, not guilty, our acquittal from our sin is not based on obeying the law. You're like, yeah, but I'm really good at it. No, you're not. It's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Like you were made right with God because of Jesus Christ, not because of anything you've done, meaning you have nothing to point to. The only thing you can point to is Jesus and what he has done. That levels the playing field. So we go back to no one has met God's standards. Correct. We all need Jesus Christ. Correct. We are all only saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. There is no reason to boast. There's no reason to talk about everybody else's sin or point to what they've done. What we do is we point to Jesus Christ. And the good news is, because it's actually great news, you've been invited to the party. Even in a t-shirt, 
Come on. Come to the party. You're like, yeah, but I don't want to be with those people. You're just going to miss out on the party. You're going to miss out on the celebration. The party that God is throwing. Can you imagine what that's going to look like? It's going to be awesome. It's going to be fun. It's going to be celebratory. It's going to be just when God's with us and we're celebrating him and his glorious grace. Like, don't miss out on that. And he extends the invitation to you and to me to come on. Come be a part of it. And once we are redeemed by Jesus Christ, it's only then we can rediscover and pursue God's design for life. And folks, that's going to look different for all of us. All of us are going to be on this journey to learn what it means to live for God. And we're going to have to die to some things that we didn't know we had to die to. And then we're going to find out that we're sinning in areas that we had no idea we were sinning in. You're like, that doesn't sound fun. It's not always fun. But we're saved by grace. And we're so grateful of it. And so we do it. And it's fun. And it's exciting. And you will find your purpose in God's plan for your life. And it will be the most rewarding thing you've ever done. Because of his grace. Do you understand that your heavenly father is the creator of the universe and welcomes anyone who puts their trust in his son, Jesus Christ, for the redemption, forgiveness of, the, of your sins? And I'm so sorry that anyone's taught or said or what your father's done to make you think God is anything other than that. I'm sorry for other people and other pastors and other churches that make God out to be anything other than that. I'm sorry. But this is who God is. Elder brothers are what they are. They just haven't found grace. And we extend grace to them. We just know they just haven't come all the way and they haven't experienced it yet. Right? Like in this story, and some of you here today are elder brothers. Just deal with it. Elder brothers point to sin and law. They want you to clean up first before you come to Jesus. But Jesus says, come as you are. And you'll change along the way. We don't clean up before Jesus. We give our life to Jesus and the cleanup process starts to happen. But the crazy thing is in his eyes, we're clean. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed on us. It's given to us. It's amazing. I don't understand it. When I do, I'll let you know. But he gives it to us. And we live in that. And when you embrace grace... This costly grace, it wasn't free, it wasn't cheap. It cost the Son of God to come and be beaten and hung on a cross and die for you and me and bleed out. Like, that's not cheap. It was very expensive. When you embrace this, you then live in gratitude to God that our salvation cost us nothing, but it cost Jesus everything. And yet here we are. So we are deeply in debt to his love and mercy. Our true elder brother, Jesus, the Lord, King, and Messiah, died to reconcile you and me. And he changed the world by his self-sacrificial love. And you can experience that. And so I ask, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you see God as your heavenly father who welcomes you home and says, come on, come be a part of what I'm doing? Do you trust that his sacrifice is enough? That's what we put our faith in. We put our faith and trust that what Jesus has done is enough. And if you haven't, are you ready to surrender your life to him? Because your heavenly father waits for you. He says, come home. 
There's no point to run. Be forgiven. Rest in his mercy and grace. Allow him to hug you, throw his arms around you, say, welcome home. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for being our good Father who loves us. We are so thankful for your grace and we recognize we need you. You have given us your unmerited favor. We deserve nothing, but you gave us everything. So Lord, we understand all we can do is simply receive the gift that you've already purchased for us. Father, we know that today you are drawing people here to receive your grace and the gift of salvation. For so many, they've played church their entire life. They've tried to earn it. They've tried to do the right thing. They've tried to be good enough. But Father, we recognize today that salvation is free. We can't earn it. We have to receive it. Father, there's some here today who've been running from you for a very long time. And they hear your call to come home. If you're here today and you're ready to give your life to Christ, you're ready to turn your life over to our Heavenly Father, you can pray something like this. Do it on your own or you can do it now. Say, Heavenly Father, my life is broken. I recognize it's because of my sin that I need you. I believe that Christ Jesus came to live, die, and was raised from the dead to rescue me from my sin. Forgive me. I turn from my selfish ways and put my trust in you. I know that Jesus is Lord of all and I will follow him. Thank you for grace and accepting me into your family. Father, we're so thankful that you extend your invitation. We're so thankful for those who gave their life to you today. They've been forgiven and redeemed and are now your children. Father, so we celebrate and we sing to you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.